Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank my friends in Soundgarden for writing their, that song about their favorite wrestling podcast, their podcast of any sort, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. I know there's competition out there. I know there are a lot of wrestling podcasts, but I maintain that there's only one wicked good wrestling podcast. It is Stick to Wrestling. I'll tell you what, don't listen to me. Let's ask the Beatles. Is the Stick to Wrestling the only Wicked Good Wrestling podcast out there? Are you going to sit there and argue with the Beatles? I don't think so. I want to bring in my guest. Before I do that, though, I want to say this. I know podcasts are, are an escape for everyone. And I just hope everyone who's listening is doing well, not just physically. And not even just financially, but emotionally. And yeah, you macho man, Randy Savage is out there. That's a real thing. I had a bad COVID day this week when I learned, or I kind of figured out, there's not going to be any college football this year. And that is a downer. And I just had a day when it was wearing on me. So I just hope, I'm out of that, but I hope everyone's doing well. And please wear a mask when you're around other people. It is the key to getting us out of this, and that's all I want. Let's get out of this. With that pleasantry behind us, I want to bring in a guest who's been on Stick to Wrestling before. He has a, his own, or not his own, but he is the co-host of a new podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. I want to bring in John Boucher. John, how are you? I'm good. How are you, John? Uh, I'm doing pretty well today. Thank you for asking. Good, good, good. Tell us about this podcast of yours. Well, it's uh, Al Getz, uh, Al Getz Wrestling on Twitter, if you want to follow Al. Uh, he's the host. I am the co-host, and it's called Charting the Territories. And what we do is we basically take a data-driven look at pro wrestling from the territorial era with a uh, primary focus there on the McGurk-Watts territory from the late 50s to the mid-80s. And we go month by month. It's a monthly podcast. So in, in June, we did June of 72, June of 76, June of 1980, along with a quarter from the late 50s, early 60s that jumps around. In addition, Al is attempting to get records from every house show in that territory during that time. So he's got something like close to 15,000 results from so, so far. So it's insane. And this isn't just stuff that you can Google results for. He's in the library or was in the library, hasn't been lately on the microfilm machine getting results. And he uses these results to create statistics that quantify individual wrestlers' achievements in a way that staff used in baseball and football can't really capture and take that into account, you know, the unique nature of pro wrestling. So using those, he's got two main stats, a spot rating and a feud rating. Uh, and the spot rating measures a wrestler's average position on the card they're always main events. They'll have a high spot rating. A prelim guy will have a lower spot rating. And there's also a feud score, which measures the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens, how it's distributed over a period of time, if there's return matches, et cetera, et cetera. But that's basically the crux of it. 
I would highly recommend if it sounds interesting to you, go to chartingtheterritories.com. That is Al's website. Uh, chartingthepodcast.com is where you can find the podcast. I consider John Boucher a great friend, and I would lie for him. I, if I listened to the podcast and I didn't like it, I would tell you guys it was great. However, I did listen to the podcast, and I did really enjoy it. That's from the heart. On that podcast, for example, I learned that Moondog Rex is the Bobby Gritch of professional wrestling. If you want to find out, you have to listen to this podcast. And I thought Al and John were very informative. Al, I mean... I know my 1980 Mid-South, like, better than a lot of people. I got it on TV. Uh, it's not available on tape, so all we have is re- results. Al's knowledge of Mid-South blows mine away. He, Al, Al is such a wealth of knowledge, and going behind the, like, the, the angles and what led up to stuff, and this, without, without having TV, he's, like, researched, found people who've seen the TV, interviewed people, newspaper articles so all the stuff like oh why does ken mantell have this weird headgear why is he wearing this you know like he has he has all those answers for us so it's great and he's a great great host and a great guy yeah um and as a matter of fact do you have to find out from for me through al or i should just ask al myself who won that arm wrestling contest i've been looking for that answer for 40 years they had a tournament on mid-south wrestling for you know who it was the best in arm wrestling and i'm sure there was an angle believe it or not seeing as it's pro wrestling yeah. that ended this but like it it went off my cable system before that happened uh, and wasn't the worst thing in the world because i got florida wrestling in its place but still ooh. i want to know yeah i will be the guy all right so yeah shout out to al and i always say you know i've been looking forward to doing this particular podcast some more than others, like if we do a mailbag, well, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about until a couple of days before the episode, but maybe a month ago, I reached out to John, and I was like, hey, you know, would you like to come back and be the, the co-host on Six Wrestling? And when he agreed, I said, okay, what would you like to talk about? You should see what he sent me. Oh, my <laughs> God. I, I have been dying to talk about this ever since I laid eyes on it. It is the first ever... And I'd never seen this before. The first ever edition of the Wrestling Observer newsletter. It's like the first one. Dave was getting away from his like California wrestling and the other thing he was doing beforehand. And he is now doing the Observer. But wait, there's more. He sent out 50 ballots to people for the 1982 Wrestling Observer Awards. He got 36 of them back. And these are the results of those votes. Now, Dave himself says, hey. This isn't perfect, but it's a little bit like the college football poll where you're get, at least getting 32 different viewpoints, and some of them are expert viewpoints. I don't agree with all of them, but that's what we're here to talk about, John. Indeed. All right. Let's start with 1982 Wrestler of the Year. Ric Flair wins in a runaway. He gets 18 of the possible 36 first-place votes. Number two is Roddy Piper. Number three is Harley Race. Number four is Tiger Mask Sayama. Number five is Jimmy Snuka. And getting an honorable mention is Hulk Hogan. John, if you had to vote 1982 Wrestler of the Year, who would get your vote? I'd probably go with Flair. Flair, 1982, is the year that he really establishes himself as the top wrestler in, in the U.S. It's the first time we really see Ric Flair as Ric Flair as we know him. The Ric Flair from the 80s. This is when we start to see him. Um, he's, the NWA is still 
a traveling champion. Um, he's having great matches all over the world. His schedule, when you look at it, is absolutely insane, insane, insane. The, the one thing that is really interesting, when, when Flair talks about this reign, he talks about it in almost like a, a disparaging, self-deprecating fashion. Yes. Like he's like, he says, I, I, he almost belittles this run. Like, oh, I wasn't ready then. And I don't know. I, I'm always curious why, because I thought this was a great, great run. When I was reading Ric Flair's book for the first time, this was over 15 years ago, I was really taken aback by his take on you know what his first reign was like. I mean, did it draw the way race drew or the way, I don't know, I guess race is the only guy you can compare to. I honestly don't know. I was always under the impression that it was a successful run and that everyone made money and he got a bunch of new guys over. Yeah, I don't know if it's a matter of if it's just his own sort of revisionist history for it or if there was something behind the scenes happening that he didn't he wasn't a fan of. I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it's, such a, it's a great, great run. I mean, Rick, and I'm not saying this in a disparaging manner, he he lets his insecurities fly sometimes. And I think this is one of those cases, because until, again, the day I read that book, I always thought very highly of his first run. This is the meat of it. And Ric Flair would also get my vote for Wrestler of the Year 1982. Roddy Piper finishes in second. John, who would you have put in that number two spot? I would probably go with with Piper as well. Georgia was just on fire this year. And Piper has a lot to do with that. And everybody's still talking about ratings now. In 1982, even Dave was was the only one talking about ratings. Like he's Georgia was the highest rated sports program in the nation that summer, more popular than baseball and boxing. Uh, the most watched cable show in the U S you know, Piper for the first three quarters of the year was, you know, was it safe to say he's the biggest, biggest heel in the business. And then in the latter quarter of the year, the biggest baby face, maybe uh, in, in Georgia and Crockett, you know, and Dave sort of hints that the baby face turn only came around because Piper was stabbed. <laughs> In the Carolinas. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you, who, who do you have for number two? I would have Roddy Piper at number three. I would have put Jimmy Snuka in at number two, and there may be some local bias entering into that. But Snuka, as a heel, had a huge run against Backlund, had a medium run against Pedro Morales. And then when the babyface turn hit, I mean, they created a sensation like nothing I'd ever seen before. The Northeast was wild about Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, I remember 80, 1982 was a very special year for me, John. Uh, 1982 was the first full year that I watched professional wrestling on TV. So I remember Snuka happening, and it was insane. Like, he was a, a huge, huge star. Like, little kids in the neighborhood were talking about Jimmy Snuka, who I didn't even know liked wrestling. Like, little kids jumping off the porch doing the Snuka stuff. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge, huge. I, yeah, I probably had him at, at three for me, but he was just, uh, and his year was sort of similar to Piper's as far as like starting out a heel, still being very popular. And I, I, I loved him as a heel when he had like the scumbag mustache and the crazy hair still had <laughs> oh, the boots yeah. and they don't turn him baby faced again. until almost October, they don't do the official quote unquote turn. I actually, I had a question about Snuka that I wanted to ask you actually, oh, what's um, that? cause he is just so, so popular in the Northeast. Have you seen him before he was in the WWF? Yes, I did. I followed him in the magazines, and I was really shocked in 79 when I picked up a magazine and saw that he had turned heel. 
But the first time I actually saw him wrestle was when I finally got cable or WTBS on our cable system in October 1981. So I saw him there and I was absolutely thrilled uh, on the day where they, they didn't even announce that, you know, Jimmy Snooker was going to be on the program. They just said, now coming down the aisle from the Fiji Islands and here comes Albano and Snooker. And I just, I popped like crazy. Why do you think it was that he did not take off to the level that he did in the WWF? Why, did, why wasn't he that successful in Mid-Atlantic or Georgia? I think in Mid-Atlantic, he had some success. But he, here's my big theory, right? In the Mid-Atlantic area, they had Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat. They had guys, especially Steamboat, who did sensational things. In the WWF, we never saw anything like the no. Snooka Splash before because the, yeah. you know, the wrestling was really slow-paced. So I think that's a, a major reason why he got so old. That's a good point. Yeah. All good right. Point. One thing I want to talk about, number three was Harley Race. I'm not getting this. No disrespect to Harley, but, John, what do you think he did in 1982 that would make him more worthy of the number three spot than Jimmy Snuka, Hulk Hogan, Kerry Von Erich, etc. I'm trying to figure that out. I have almost not verbatim, but a very similar sentiment in my notes. Uh, you know, not to not to tip a sacred cow was my first phrase there. <laughs> but I have a little bit of a problem with Harley at number three. Um, he does, you know, work a lot of matchups with Flair, uh, Von Erichs in Japan a lot. You know, he's working Jumbo Saruta in Japan. Um, but there's a lot of other inconsequential stuff like time in central states and just on middle of the card in St. Louis, it seems like like more of a, almost a, a transitional year for race than a banner year. Like almost like he's preparing to patch the torch, but it hasn't quite happened yet. It's, it's not an outstanding year. I don't see him at above Snuka or Tiger Mask. I, I, I wouldn't even have him. I probably wouldn't have him in my top 20, to be honest with you. And again, let's make it clear. I'm talking about January 1st, 1982, through December 31st, 1982, you know, Harley just seemed like a guy who was fading. Yeah. So I I didn't get that one either. Let's move on to best hero of the year. I have the feeling that this is best baby face of the year. And by the way, I want want to make this perfectly clear. I am not saying anything bad or mocking Dave Meltzer or any of his voters when I'm talking about this stuff. This is from almost 40 years ago when Dave was probably in his very early 20s. I I hate to see anyone like bringing out anything I worked on when I was in my early 20s, for sure. Uh, Yeah, yeah, John understands. By going hiding. (laughs) Best hero of the year, number one, Hulk Hogan, with 11 out of 36 possible number one votes. Jimmy Snuka is number two. Then there's kind of a fall-off. Junkyard Dog at number three, Roddy Piper at number four. Paul Orndorff and Tommy Rich tied at the number five spot. Honorable mention, Antonio Inoki, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, and Ricky Steamboat. John, who would you put at the number one spot? I I, I would be torn between Hogan and Snuka. It'd be tough for me. Again, with the, with the Northeast bias, Snuka was so incredibly popular. But then again, they have Hogan. And Hogan, this is a great year for Hogan. He really starts to become... You know, like Ric Flair is becoming Ric Flair. Hogan is becoming Hulk Hogan. Yes. In, ni- in 1982. And he's just, you know, and he's not, not only just a star in wrestling, but a, a mainstream star. Like he's in Rocky, his Rocky three. He's on the Tonight Show. 
you know, he's in Japan a bunch doing the tag league tournament stuff with Anoki. Yeah, it's like it's it's not even you know wrestling spends so much time looking to find the next you know fill in the blank the next Bruno or the next whoever uh, the next Fez you know and Hogan wasn't didn't do that he didn't become the next anybody but he became the first the first Hulk Hogan you know yeah. which is yeah. I mean, I remember when Rocky Three came out. I specifically went to go see it the not the day it came out, but like the weekend it came out, just because Hulk Hogan was in that movie. It wasn't because I was a huge Hogan fan. I liked Hogan, you know, but he wasn't like my favorite wrestler. But just because of the novelty of seeing a pro wrestler in a movie. I mean, the the year before, I went to go see Escape from New York just because Ox Baker was in it, and that that happened to be a really good movie. And he had a bit role, and now Hogan's got a pretty, I don't want to say a big role, but a, bit, a big enough role in Rocky Three. Yeah, and it, it, it says a lot about the era where a wrestler being in a movie was reason enough for wrestling fans to go see the movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was such a rare occurrence. Ultimately, I would have gone Jimmy Snooker number one, and like Hogan, like this by the slimmest of margins over Hulk Hogan for the reasons that I just talked about. He was such a sensation. By the time he turned. Who'd you have at number three? Number three, I would have gone with Paul Orndorff. And yep. Paul Orndorff was over huge on WTBS. Uh, he looked like a potential next NWA champion. We talk a little bit about this on the show. Like starting in 1984, the wrestling personalities, which were already, you know, a big part of the show we're getting more and more outrageous. And for those who have only seen the Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Paul Orndorff in Georgia came off as a real athlete. He came across as if you were interviewing the quarterback after the game, or if you're interviewing a baseball player after the game, he's out there in a business suit. He's got his national heavyweight championship next to him, and he's talking like a normal athlete. And I thought it looked fantastic. Yeah. I, I I love he's he's booked really well. He's booked like a kick-ass baby face. He's like a tough guy. Um, and he's the kind of baby face that you want to root for. Yes. Uh, e- even now, even in, in 2020, you want to root for the kick-ass baby face. And it's, it's compare and contrast to, uh, you know, Bob Backlund, you know, who, who, who is harder to root for in some ways than a guy like Orndorff. And Orndorff is just, you know, wherever he, like in Mid-South, there's the, the turn after the angle with Roop in the car, just a great little angle there. Yep. In Georgia, he's he's plugged right away into the national title, the, the main Georgia belt there. Wins it from Sawyer, bitches the belt to pursue Flair in the world title. I think they have a couple matches that are inconclusive finishes. Uh, then he sets his sights back on the math superstar for the title. It's great. He's booked. He's just booked so well, and his his personality suited the booking and vice versa. It was. It was great. I would have him higher than than five as well. All right, yeah. And you know what? I really like the comparison you made with Bob Backlund and Paul Orndorff. It was like Paul Orndorff was Bob Backlund if Bob Backlund was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any is there anyone on this let's that you kind of you know, let's say the the Harley race where you're like, okay, what's this guy doing on here? Uh I mean JYD I guess could be a little bit lower. It's hard. 82 is not 81, I guess, you know, for the junkyard dog. I don't yeah. know if he should be lower. It's, you know, it's not a bad year, but it's, I don't know if three is where he belongs. 
Piper, I, I, I would put higher. I guess I'd maybe flop Piper in JYD because Piper was a huge baby face once he, once he flipped. Yes, he um, was. Antonio Inoki, I could speak to him. I can't speak to him as a top hero. I mean, he's a top guy in Japan, obviously. But I can't talk about him in the same way I could talk, we could talk about Hogan or Snuka in 1982. Sure, it's a different game. I think by the end of 1982, Tommy Rich, I noticed, okay, that Tommy Rich was running out of gas. He was getting a little bit heavy. He seemed to get stale in Georgia. He was really hot in 81, but by the end of 82, it feels like it felt at the time like Tommy was taking a few steps backward. It turned out we were right. Yeah, it's it, it, when watching it, watching it back current day, it's sort of like they have him positioned as the sort of like a dusty in Florida where he's the guy in the chase. And you just sort of see him as he's chasing, you know, as the year goes on, he's getting further and further away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it turned out that, you know, again, Tommy, Tommy had peaked by that point. Yeah. Best villain of the year, winning by a pretty decent margin. Number one with six number one votes is Buzz Sawyer. Number two is Ted DiBiase. Number three is Roddy Piper. That's great. Uh, number four, and I thought this was interesting, it just says the superstar. In the WWF, he was the mass superstar. But in yeah. Georgia, he was referred to by everyone as just the superstar. Yeah. Number five is Ric Flair. And then we get a bunch of honorable mentions. Adrian Adonis, Sergeant Slaughter, Terry Funk, Greg Valentine, Buddy Rose, Ken Patera, and Don Morocco. John, oh if you had to pick a number one, who would it be? Number one, I'd, pr- I'd probably go with DiBiase over Buzz. I just think DiBiase as a heel was, like, I don't want to say frightening, but it was, there was like, when he, once he turned to heel, he was evil. Like, he's yes. like an evil, an evil, evil dude. Um, like, to do this to your best man in your wedding. And he, I, I, re- I really appreciate another thing with, you know, with Mid-South going back, you know, it's like a re- Mid-South is like a really good record. You can go back and it. It rewards repeated watching um, and the little subtle things DiBiase would change in the way, uh, I mean, obviously his promos and his work. And obviously there's, you know, you're, you're a heel now, you're going to punch, you're going to kick. Just the subtle things he, he changed in his work, the way he, even the way he would take bump, the way he would hold like an arm bar, you know, before he would just have an arm bar. And now when he does an arm bar, he's standing, straddling the guy, like he's a dominant animal, you know, yeah. it's like little things like that. And it's like, and he's just, there's such a, a menace that, you know, as, as, as crazy as Buzz Sawyer is and as nuts, it's, it's some the, the evil that came out of DiBiase was somehow more more frightening just because he wasn't screaming. <laughs> I don't know. It's, no, what that, you're saying 100 percent makes sense, because I would also have gone Ted DiBiase at number one. It would have been number one by a pretty long margin. I mean, Ted, it was almost like his character accepted the fact that, look, if I am going to remain here in Mid-South, I have to beat Junkyard Dog in what turned into a loser-leave-town match against his best friend. And it was almost like he embraced that dark side. It's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all the way with it. And Ted DiBiase would put you in a hospital bed just as quick as I would slap a mosquito off my forearm. Yeah, and it's like when you talk about heel Ted DiBiase, you know, you don't, you don't want people to think of the million dollar man. Um, I mean, that's a great, that's a great character. That's a, that's great. But like DiBiase, you know, loaded glove DiBiase is where it's at. 
Absolutely. Uh, I actually think Buzz Sawyer is a little bit high here. I mean, before I ask you what your number two is, I, I think I wouldn't have had Buzz Sawyer in my top five. I mean, he was he was really good in 82, but I think towards the end of the year, he started getting really stale. And considering the push he was going, going to get in 83, I, I, I hadn't seen anything yet. John, who would your number two be? I like the superstar a lot. I think it's very easy to call guys underrated, um, but I, I really love the math superstar as, as I first know him. Um, just a big, big, aggressive dude. Promos are great. He works a lot most of the year with the, with the Super Destroyer in the ring, and they had that great angle where I think it was in the, I think it was actually near the end of '81 where Superstar was suspended, and they brought in Super Destroyer, and everyone thought Super Destroyer was the math Superstar, even though it obviously wasn't. It was you know, it's Superstar. He works Tommy Rich, Wrestling Two. I, I love the Superstar a lot. Love, love, love. And there's one interview with Gordon and him in the, in the hotel when he's suspended. And that's just a great, where he's got Torquemada, Ray Stevens, and Mephisto with a briefcase full of money. And the superstar just, just seems like also like a bad, bad, evil dude. Yeah, th- that was from when I first started getting WTBS. So this was the, the episode where he got suspended was the first Georgia episode I'd ever seen. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. And he, once again, he superstar. He came across as just a little bit like Ted DiBiase. Just, I don't care. I'm not even mad at you. I just need to take you out. Yep. What do you think of superstar holding a major singles title in the early eighties, either masked or unmasked? I think you'd have to go masked. I think, I mean, he did hold the, uh, the top title in Georgia. He did hold, he was never United States champion. But he was uh, NWA tag team champions more than once, and and those titles were a big deal. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have put him as an NWA champion, but I mean, I I can definitely see him being like the top champion in Florida, the the United States champion, et cetera. What do you think? Gotcha. I've always I've I've always wanted more from him, or wanted something bigger for him. I don't know, and and when listening to you talk about it, then it might maybe he got exactly what he he needed, and there's really no way for him to yeah yeah you can't see him as the nwa champion but you know as a regional i just wanted i just saw such promise in him he was such a big guy and he was never really presented as like the, the big dude that he was because he's a huge guy yeah and you see him in there with andre and he, he doesn't look like a tiny guy you know who'd you have next um actually i would have had a, someone who's far down the list i would have had morocco uh don mm-hmm. morocco was a big deal in georgia uh until something happened and he walked out I'm sure that something was Ole Anderson, but he and Roddy Piper, who's my number three, I'll spill the beans. I mean, they had such great, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, chemistry together on Georgia TV. And it turns out, you know, they were like best friends in real life. So that works. He was great. Any list with a heel villain involved, Morocco has to be near the top. Um, I think he starts off the year as a babyface, actually, right? In Mid-Atlantic with Oahu, right? Um, he, He kind of, I think he started... 82 still in the WWF finishing up and then he took a vacation back to Hawaii lucky guy and yeah then he came back to mid-Atlantic as Wahoo's partner as a babyface, and he eventually turned on Wahoo not to get well it is 82 not to get sidetracked but that whole tag team tournament deal was such a oh. farce <laughs> they spent so much TV time on this yep. And then Ole and Stan just get given the belts, and then the belts get forgotten for about yep. six months. 
when they have a fictional tournament where Slaughter and Kernodal win yeah. them. I mean, it was bad booking. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, Morocco, Morocco is, is still great. He's starting to put on, he's like putting on a little weight, but it's he's not. He's put on a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he's, he's a 13-year vet or something at this point. So. But his work is still really good. His work doesn't decline for another few years. And even, even when his work does decline, it may not be a matter of him not being able to work at that level. It just might be a matter of him either not having to work at that level or being asked not to work at that level because it's the WWF. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Who's your number three? Number three. Oh, I, I, I had a write-in. You can do that. <laughs> I had a write-in. I have, um, I have multiple write-ins. I have, and I have a couple write-ins for honorable mentions, too. Uh, Joe LaDuke. Okay. Is one of mine. Uh, there's a great angle, and I would almost put this in as a write-in for Feud of the Year. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a big, long feud, but it's in uh, Southeastern. Joe LaDuke is Southeastern champ. Uh, Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau Jr. at the time comes into the territory challenging for the title. Uh, and the announcers, Charlie Platt and whoever, explain how the, the LaDukes and the Rougeau has been feuding for years. You know, like the Canadian Hatfields and McCoys. Almost. Oh, yeah. They're setting the table, and Rougeau get, eventually works his way to a title shot on TV. LaDuke ends up tying him in the ropes, taking his belt, undoing his belt from his pants, and whipping him on TV. So Rougeau wins the Q by DQ, but it's more, more of the embarrassment that hurts, of course. So they have the rematch again. Uh, Rougeau gets the belt away, whips LaDuke, so sets up another TV rematch. And then this, this episode... Rougeau is the victim of LeDuc using a chloroform or the old ether rag trick. Knocks him out, shaves his head. So Jacques Rougeau's got a shaved head and swears revenge. They feud all of the Terry for a month feud, culminating in a loser leaves town match for the Southeastern title, which Rougeau wins. So young babyface Jacques has the title and LeDuc leaves town for a month. So I think it goes to Florida, Mid-Atlantic or something. But I love this feud. It's so, it's just so, this, it's so simple, but all the boxes are checked. On it. It's very simple. It's, it's very bare bones. There's a family history, personal issues, top title in the territory. Heel does heel stuff, so it becomes more personal. Then they blow it off in a way that works. Baby faces over, heel leaves, you know. And, and Joe LaDuke obviously has no trouble keeping his heat, you know. And the fans have closure. And then you could pair off Rougeau with Rip Rogers or whoever else is down there. I like it for its for its brevity, its concise, economical booking. All right. LaDuke is a guy I wish had come up here and gone around the horn against Backland. I think he would have got, gotten over great, mm-hmm. especially if they got out of his way and let him do interviews because those intense interviews oh. he did in Southeastern and Memphis were, were incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's like he's either smashing the ashtray on his face, cutting his arm up, or holding back a truck. Just, yeah, another guy legitimate, seems like a legitimate psychopath. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that feud where he breaks the, uh, I don't even know what it was, but it was a glass something, and he smashed it over his head, the side of his head, and everything oh, yeah. was flying, and the blood starts pouring, and he just keeps talking. It, it, it was wonderful, but yeah. anyway, that leaves, is there anyone on this list that makes you go, hmm, I don't know if, if this guy should be considered for best villain of the year? And this is not, don't take this the wrong way. Don't ever. I, have, I have love for him in other categories, just not this category. Adrian Adonis. I love Adrian Adonis. I love 1982 Adrian Adonis the most of all the Adrian Adonai 
He has great matches with Backlund all over the Northeast uh, and back to the AWA and the Southwest. But I'm not sure about him as the best quote unquote villain. I like, you know, the, the black leather or New York City tough guy gimmick. His promos, some of them could be great. Some seem like weird drama school monologues. Um, <laughs> but he always managed to look like like a smug jerk, which was great. I just don't know about him as best quote unquote villain. No, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I thought he was I thought he was a good heel, but I'm not sure if I would have him ranked number six as they do here. Um I forgive me if I've said this on the show before, but uh I mean I remember Adrian coming to the WWF in like fall of nineteen eighty one and the you know, he's built from from New York and he's got the leather jacket on. Then he did his interview and John, well, you're in the same spot I am. We're both from New York. We're like, this guy's not from New York. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it turns out he's from Bakersfield. But <laughs> actually, no one really stands out to me as someone who I wouldn't list. Uh, Buddy Rose had his own like weird heel charisma that worked well out here. I would not have Ric Flair ranked as high because I never thought Rick was a great heel because he had too much charisma. Yeah. Uh, but then I think about it, I'm like, well, he went all over the place. He got everyone over. So I'm not sure if that makes him the best heel or not, but that, I, I, I just never saw Ric Flair as a, a hateable guy. But then again, I mean, he got Kerry Von Erich over as a world beater. Yeah, I guess, I guess you know, Patera, I don't know how Patera is 1982. Uh, you're right, you're right. Patera doesn't belong here. I don't know about that. Like it's sort of uh, Patera is sort of he's in the AWA, at least his role sort of declines as the year as the year goes on. It's sort of like, uh, I mean, you can tell he's valued by the promotion because Vern looks at him as a guy like oh, Bockwinkle's in Houston, like if they're Patera in the main event and be good. But he's yeah. not he's not the top guy. He's more of like the the, the gatekeeper for uh, the, the, you know, the Heenan family. No, um, I always thought Patera in a tag team, even as tag team champions, that that was too small a role for him. I mean, in in the whole year of 1982, I was waiting for Ken Patera to come back to the WWF, win the championship, and have a like year long reign the way Superstar Billy Graham did. Yeah, that was what that was that on the uh, yeah. Whenever you guys would talk about what to do with the, you know, we call the 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 backland problem of '82 that. One of the solutions I always think about. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else you would write in for a villain? Because I have a couple other write-ins that I, I would love to get your opinion on. Oh, I'll tell you what. Give me yours. And let me think of mine. Okay, I would like honorable mention for David Von Erich in Florida. Yeah, that's a good one. I think he's fantastic with the roach clip in the ear. Ain't nothing been awesome but hippies and heads. That, um, that is excellent writing. Yeah, you could argue David for the top five. And also, not a wrestler. Gary Hart in Georgia, maybe. I think it's not 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 for the whole year, but I just think his little when he's there and he's talking with Piper, great great little chemistry between those two. But I'd probably throw him near 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 the the lower end of the right in, but I, I like Gary Hart in Georgia. Okay, my right in, and this is once again uh, I am biased because not only am I from the Northeast, I am from the Boston area. Jesse Ventura. All that guy had to do was show up on TV mm. and we hated him because here's this guy from California and <laughs> you know, they're not us. I mean, the Lakers and the Celtics were the, the most uh, organic rivalry ever because of the, 
the two different attitudes that you know these people have. And you know, like I said, I went to the Boston Garden and saw Jesse Ventura against Tony Atlas twice. Once was in a grudge match after the arm wrestling angle, and once was the steel cage match. There was so much heat for Jesse in that cage match. I mean, you know, the the crowd just hated him so much. So that that's my writing. I'm going with Jesse. That's a good, excellent one. I like that. And it's amazing when you talk about. And I have other guys in the in the same vein on on the list later. But people don't understand when you talk about Jesse Ventura, like not being a good quote unquote wrestler. I'm like, well, he may not have been a good technical wrestler, but he could. Guys like that got so much heat. Exactly. People, and he was, don't get me wrong, he was terrible in the ring. I think <laughs> not enough is made about how je- how bad Jesse Ventura was. But, at, you know, it's his job to sell tickets, and he did it. Yep, absolutely. All right. Feud of the year. Number one is Ted DiBiase against Junkyard Dog. Number two is Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer. Number three is Roddy Piper and Bob Armstrong. Number four is Jimmy Snuka against Lou Albano. Number five is Jimmy Snuka against Bob Backlund. Honorable mention is Anoki versus Rusher Kimura and Terry Funk versus Dusty Rhodes. John, who would you have as Feud of the Year? I'd, pro- I'd probably do uh, DiBiase, Junkyard Dog. Same um, here. I'd probably do that. I mean, it's overall, it's a great angle with the best man. Um, but like I said before, talking about uh, DiBiase, there's so many details that you pick up on when, when you watch this again. And it, it, it's, there's not a lot of wrestling promotions where you could go back and binge a, a year of it like you would, uh, you know, your favorite sitcom or something. Mid-South is one of those promotions one of my, like, where, where Roop injures DiBiase and he, after DiBiase is saving JYD, the next time he's interviewed, he's got his hand taped up. And then before he turns, he's wrestling and he has a protective glove, but it's white. And then as he begins to slowly become more aggressive over, over the coming weeks, he turns to the black glove. And it's like yeah. a, a great little detail that if you're watching it for the first time, you might not even notice. But then you go back and you're like, oh, my God, look at this little, little Easter egg that Bill Watts planted there for us. It's, 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 it's great to watch this stuff multiple times because you will be rewarded. I agree wholeheartedly. I remember the little detail when Bob Roop was complaining about Ted DiBiase wearing a glove and, and DiBiase gets on TV and it says, Roop, you know, you injured my hand. I have to have tape on the hand. And when I get sweaty, the tape starts to come off. So I have to keep the glove on to keep the yeah. tape on. And it's a total babyface thing until it's not. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was, I mean, obviously I'm going Ted DiBiase against JYD number one. Uh, not only was the beginning of the feud excellent, but as as time went on, it got better and better with the Stagger Lee yep. angle. Ted DiBiase, and we'll talk about this later, him turning was a shock. I mean, I did not see it, but I read about it in the magazines and just I couldn't believe that Ted DiBiase would be a bad guy. Yeah. Number two, uh, who would be? What would be your number two feud of the year for '82? This is going to be odd because I have Snooker versus Albano over over Snooker versus Backlund almost because Snooker versus Backlund, there was no sort of story. There's no venom behind that feud. It was a great wrestling feud, great wrestling matches. Uh, but Snooker Albano was just he was you know Albano was screwing Snooker. And you had Buddy Rogers playing detective in Rogers Corner. Um, you had him, you know, Albano in the Ray Stevens angle, and Albano taking, you know, busting Snook open with his own 
his own seashell beads, um, and it facilitates the turn, which you had to you had to do at some point. I could talk why I like it more than the other ones later, but I, I like Snuka versus Albano, and I like that because once you know Snuka turns, you know you can't do Snuka backlit anymore, but you can do Snuka versus Albano. You can keep that going on. You can have him throw Iron Mike Sharp or or Samoan at Snuka even after he's turned. All right, I, I'll go with that. My number two, believe it or not, is a write-in. Ric oh. Flair versus Kerry Von Erich. Oh. I mean, they did this so perfectly. They had three big matches one that culminated in the Freebirds turning on Kerry um, during the cage match. They spent an entire year building that cage match up. And the, the whole 1982 world class was about Kerry chasing the world title. And I thought, you know, unfortunately, the world they put world class the year of 1982 on WWE Network. And I was very excited because I'd never seen it before. And it's just not very good as a whole. I'm sorry. But the Flair Kerry storyline where Flair puts a bounty on Kerry and then I think it was Kabuki and Gary Hart collected it and Fritz was involved. It was really good. I thought, like I said, it was the second best feud of the year. Excellent, excellent, excellent write-in, yeah. What do you got for number three? Number three, I have Piper versus Armstrong. All right. I think this is a great feud. Piper is great. He's early on. Piper, he's, he's so so nuanced with his on commentary during this time, and that makes it so outstanding. He's able to, you know, sort of, when he's calling matches, call them more or less down the middle, compliment the Armstrongs during a match, but also get like, some little digs. And Piper and Bob have great, great chemistry as as quick and as witty and as brilliant as Piper is. Bob would come back with something witty in like his little Southern homespun way and be like, I like I I kick tougher dudes asses on the way to on the way to a fight than you, you know, just like and Piper would just be sitting there standing like "Ah." he just shuts Piper down. Also, I love about this is they don't lay a hand on each other for the first two or three months. Yes, <laughs> that's fantastic. That makes it so great when they finally, you know, when they take the feud all they take it to Crockett and there. And it's great when it finally happens. They made you want to see it every yep. week. Every week I would watch Georgia Championship Wrestling and I'd be like, OK, is this the week that Bob Armstrong has had enough of Roddy Piper or, or is this the week that Piper suckers Bob Armstrong? They did it really well. I remember Piper was interviewing Brad and Bob, and Brad and Bob had just won the Thanksgiving tournament in Atlanta. So this is, I want to say, December 1981. And Piper asked Brad, you know, they won $50,000, and Brad went out and bought a Corvette with it, which, I mean, the twenty-five grand was in a shoot, but Brad driving around in a new Corvette was a shoot. And Piper is questioning Bob Armstrong's ability to raise a child because how could you let him spend his $25,000 that way? It was like, it felt like the first episode of Piper's pit because that's kind yeah. of where this all came from. And naturally Bob is enraged over this guy questioning his yeah. parenting ability on national television. <laughs> it was just phenomenal. I loved that feud. Ultimately though, I have Bob Backlund versus Jimmy Snuka as the number two, and I agree with you. You're right that there wasn't really that element of hatred involved with those two, 
but both Boston and New York coming in because I got the New York television on cable. I mean, it felt like a dream match. And Backlund and Snooker went three matches in Madison Square Garden. I mean, I couldn't go for various reasons. Uh, one of them being is I was I was 16. But I would have died to go see that Backlund Snooker cage match. It was like a dream match to me. And, you know, that that's pretty much why I thought they did. And what you say is true, but I think the, the strong points of the feud overcome everything. Yeah, I, I agree. I have, a, I have a question about Snooker Backlund for you. I have a note to ask you. Have you ever seen the April 82 MSG show? Because that is the one I've always wanted to see. And apparently it's the one there's a DQ finish. It's their first match. Um, I, DQ finish. I, I think Backlund was carried off on a stretcher, right? Stretcher job, yeah. And I've never... Yeah. I've never I seen don't that. think I don't think that episode aired on MSG Network, and I think the reason was because they didn't want. This is speculation on my part. They didn't want the fans seeing Backlund stretchered out. Oh, okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, okay. That, that's just my theory, but okay. I, I know that one did not air, and I have never seen that. I can also throw this in: Backlund versus Snooker took place in Boston, July and August. 1982, back when there was no air conditioning in the Boston Garden, oh. both matches were terrible. I mean, oh. in any way, you couldn't blame the guys. It was so damn hot in that building. And I, I'm talking like people passing out level of hot in the July match. And those matches just were not very good. Uh, hmm. where, would, where would you go with number three, John? Uh, that, that's where I had uh, Snooker Backlund. Okay. Yeah. All right. I had Snooker versus Albano at number three because... Uh-huh. They did the great angle. Uh, they built it up really well that Albano was uh, stiffing Snooker out of his money. And like you said, Buddy Rogers did his detective work. And we find out that, you know, Albano's been skimming off the top. And, you, you know, no one's surprised that Albano would do that to someone as naive as Jimmy Snooker. And when the turn finally came, I mean, they put the heat on Albano a little bit more than they put it on Ray Stevens. And the people absolutely wanted to see Jimmy Snooker kill Lou Albano. And I remember the, the heat for their match in Boston was tremendous. And, of course, the finish was the, the same finish in yeah. every Albano match where he bleeds and he runs away. Yeah. Is, there, is there any write-ins that you would throw in here besides the ones we just talked about? I have one. I have one also. Okay. Mine is Jerry Lawler versus Dutch Mantel. That was a really good feud. Um, yeah, and it's, it's you know, Lawler, uh, Andy Kaufman gets a lot of mainstream press, but this Southern heavyweight title feud is, is pro- maybe one of the best feuds, probably not the top, but one of the best of each of their respective careers, especially since both of those guys are babyfaces at yep. the time, which is, really, which is rare in general in 1982, especially rare for Memphis, where it's usually very clear who is on what side of the fence. Um, and Lawler was still reaping the benefits of the, the post-broken leg babyface turn, and, and Dutch was also a fan favorite, as they say. And uh, I think Mantell beats Lawler at one point over the summer, which is one of the few pinfall losses for Lawler in 82. Um, and they have the blow-off with the barbed wire match in, in Memphis. And usually barbed wire matches are a lot better, look a lot better on that program and in the magazines mm-hmm. than, than they are. But this was actually a good brawl. It's not, I don't know how to explain it very well, but it's not like they're, they're not working a quote-unquote barbed wire match. They're working a brawl that happens to have 
barbed wire around the ring, if that makes any sense. They're not sitting there doing the, you know, the five minute tease of like, oh, am I going to put his head in the, am I going to do it? No, there's none of that. It's just like a good brawl that happens to have barbed wire around the ring. That's a good way of putting it. That was a really good feud. Uh, if I had to throw in a, uh, another right in, it's one we already talked about, Tony Atlas against Jesse Ventura. That was a fun feud. Uh, Jesse was fun in general. I mean, he would come out and talk t- and call Tony Atlas bony Atlas. And my yeah. friends and I would just be like, is he kidding? Atlas has a way better body than this guy. Rick Martell has a better body than this guy. <laughs> he call, calls himself the body. But, I mean, that's how the game is played. I now yeah. understand that. But, anyway, tag team of the year. Before you go to tag one, teams. I'm before sorry? You go tag teams, before you go to tag teams, can we talk about Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer? Oh, yeah. And again, I don't want to. I like what you just did, by the way. If you have something to say, get it in there because I want to hear it. This is I don't I don't mean to be controversial. (laughs) Uh Oh, but um, I don't see this as the number two feud. I know this feud went on forever, forever, ever, 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 ever. And my favorite interaction between these two guys wasn't even really a match. It was like a a backstage brawl they had where Tommy Rich backdrops Buzz Sawyer onto the parquet floor and they brawl through the back. The matches are just okay. The great promos from Buzz. He's always great, decent promos from Tommy, but this this whole feud leaves me a little cold. Uh, you know, even like the Blast Battle of Atlanta stuff, like again, looks great on the cover of Inside Wrestling. But then, you know, it, it sums for me it sums up like when the last Battle of Atlanta footage was finally released and everybody watched it, they're sort of like, Okay, that was it. That you was match. <laughs> and what? that's how I feel about this feud. It's like, okay. I'd rather I... see Sawyer and Orndorf, you know. When I watched the last Battle of Atlanta, my expectations were so low that I came away saying, okay, I liked that. It wasn't great. It was like a three-star match, but I didn't think it was going to be that good. What do you think of the feud? I'm like you. The feud, by December 31st, 1982, this feud was already just... uh, acid-washed. I mean, they had been going at it since summer of 1981, on and off. And just think, the last Battle of Atlanta was in October 1983. And even as, you know, someone who didn't get the newsletters, like, I knew exactly what was happening. Buzz was about to turn, so they're milking one last match out of this, and that's exactly what they did. I think, it's like, I think it was, like, actually a week, either a week after or a week before the Morocco Snuka match, I think. Oh, that sounds about right. As a matter of fact, I wanted to mention this. We talked about the Backland Snuka cage match, which took place on a Monday night. Six days later, Bob Backland is wrestling Ric Flair at the Omni. So talk about a guy having a fun week. Oh, yeah. Wow. All right. Tag team of the year. Uh, Number one was Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen. Number two were the Samoans. Number three were Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. Uh, number four were Fuji and Saido. Number five was Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy. Getting honorable mentions was the Sheep Herders, uh, Antonio Inoki and Hulk Hogan, and Dorian Terry Funk. The Andersons won by a pretty big margin, John. Who would you have had as number one? They would win by a margin for me as well. I don't, I, you know, I'd almost put those guys, you know, they could even go on the best villain list at some points during during the year. I have another question for you. I apologize for all these questions. I remember Stan coming in as a baby face initially. Do you remember there being a turn for Stan Hansen? Or was it just like, I got to feed my fat old lady and my kids. He's giving me money. Oh, 
there was a turn. I'm trying to think because I think I missed the episode where he turned, but I, I know there was a, an actual Stan Hansen babyface turn on Ole. I, it might have been one of those deals where Ole kept interrupting him during interviews. Ah, okay. You know what? Stick to Wrestling has a Facebook group, and if anyone knows exactly how Stan Hansen turned, because I, I kind of don't remember, please let us know. And if you just put in Stick to Wrestling, a Facebook group will come up, and it's a cool group. Um, if you have a question about wrestling, or if you want to talk about something on the show, if you have a question about wrestling, it'll get answered. If you've been like wondering about something forever, chances are someone in this group will have the answer. But anyway, I would have had Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy as my number one team. They were, I mean, everyone knows who the Freebirds were. They were a big deal already. They had been heels. The whole time that Michael Hayes turned babyface in 1981, he feuded with Gordy in Georgia and Southeastern, and then they had the angle in Southeast where Gordy saved Michael Hayes from getting his hair shaved, and they came back to Georgia, and they were, the, they were not just the number one team. They were like the number one act for a long time. They had their feud with Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen, which was the main event at the Omni. And I thought they were the two guys who juiced the feud. It was something we always wanted to see, the Freebirds as baby faces. So I'm going with them, number one. Yeah, that's a good number one. They're my, they're my, they're my, they're my number two. I hate the idea of referring to guys who aren't actual rock stars as rock stars, but they're total rock stars. Oh, in yeah. 1980. They're just like cool, badass dudes. And it's great to... Uh, I didn't. I didn't see most of this Georgia stuff as it aired after the fact. Seeing most of it, so it's it was thrilling to go back and discover them as a beloved babyface tag team. You know, it's 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 great. And even later in the year, again, not even as a as a proper tag team, but Hayes and Gordy with the uh, you know the Carrie Flair stuff being so even even not as a tag team, they're still somehow find themselves in the upper echelon and it's setting up, you know, sets up the next three or four years of their lives. <laughs> yeah. My number two was Stan Hansen and Ole Anderson. I thought I could have put them at number one. They had a great year. So we already talked about them. John, what would be your number three tag team for 1982? My number three. I love the wild Samoans, John. I make no apologies about it. They, <laughs> I, I love them when I was a kid. They were my first favorite tag team when I was a kid. They were so, so, so scary. And because I was only seeing them on, on TV in squash matches, they seemed super scary and absolutely impervious to pain, which is like a novel concept these days, like building up a heel to be impervious to pain on, on TV. They start off in Mid-South, Tag Champs 81, I think. Get the belts back a couple times during the run here. Then they're in Georgia. But it's like interesting, the most... The, the biggest move they make in 82 it, that has sort of the biggest implications is and sort of foreshadows a lot of what's going to happen in the next few years of them just taking off. Yeah. You know, in a way, that was the first bullet shot in the war of 1984 when Vince just grabbed the Samoans and they left Georgia with no notice. Yeah. I mean, you know, there might have been something before that, but like, I, if, if there was, I don't know about it. Yeah, the Samoans were great, and I thought, my only thing about them, I thought they came back to the WWF a little too soon. Maybe not hmm. business-wise, but in terms of like 
what I wanted from pro wrestling. I wanted a little bit more of a break from the Samoans, but you know, and you knew what was going to happen as soon as they came back on TV, they were going to be the lead heel tag team for the next year. All right. My number two, my number three, excuse me, would have been Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps more regional bias, but these two were hated and their feud with the Strongbows. We've talked about this on the show before. It started off so hot. And one reason was because everyone hated Albano, Fuji, and Saito so much. Yeah, it's it's hard. Like I, it's in the same way that it is hard in 2020 to explain the popularity of Chief J Strongbow in 1979 to people who didn't see that. It's almost as difficult to explain to people the heat that Fuji and Saito had and how hated they were. Yeah, it's it's like I I was watching just a couple a uh, couple weeks ago just for the hell of it, uh, Spectrum card with uh, Strongbow Strongbows against Fuji and Saito, and the crowd is going absolutely insane, like insane insanity that you will you, you never see at wrestling anymore, and you rarely see it at any sporting event unless it's like the final game of a playoff or something. Insane, insane heat, insane. I have this story. In 1982, I'm at the Boston Garden. It's Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito against Rick McGraw and Andre the Giant. And, of course, they did the thing where Fuji and Saito get disqualified in the first fall. And Andre wins by pinfall, and the place goes nuts because they think the titles have changed hands. And, you know, I knew they hadn't. But during the match, Mr. Fuji had a handful of salt. And he was, like, ready to throw it at Andre the Giant. And I'm not joking when I said that there there was a deafening chant in the Boston Garden. Fuji's got salt. Fuji's got yeah. salt. And, you know, the ref doesn't know what to do. So he's trying yeah. to check him for the salt. And, and they want to do whatever spot that the fans just ruined for them. And <laughs> a referee can't find figure out that a wrestler standing right next to him has a handful <laughs> of salt. It was comedic. <laughs> Any write-ins for Tag Team of the Year, John? Oh, write-ins. What do I have for write-ins? I have no write-ins. I have uh, I, I have Ganya and Brunzel next. I, at, at first, I was looking at it, and I thought maybe maybe three was a little too high for these guys. But after thinking about it, I sort of agree with the the, the placement. Maybe maybe here, maybe maybe down to four. Uh, you know, uh, they're you know they're like a proto rock and roll express. You know, <laughs> they they've been around for like eight years at this point, I think. And there's a couple of matches. Like I went and watched back some stuff, and there's a couple of matches they have against Tito Santana and Rick Martel in St. Paul, Minnesota. Both on YouTube, both fantastic matches, and they're both really good examples of how a babyface versus babyface tag match can work, and both teams, teams can still get their heat. Really, really good matches. Highly recommend them. Um, the majority of the feud with Adonis Venture, I think, is 81, but they might do the blow-off in 82. But I... I, 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 I I think they're kind of underrated, High Flyers. Shout out to friend of mine, friend of the show, Chris Berg from Minnesota, who swears up and down that Ganya and Brunzel were the best tag team ever, better than the Rock and Roll Express, better than the Midnight Express. Oh, I have not seen enough of them to back that up, but he has. Hmm. If I had to put in a write-in, I remember thinking in 1982 like when they were presenting the NWA tag team titles as, you know, these are going to be the tag team equivalent of the, the of Ric Flair's NWA title. I was yeah. thinking, wow, I sure would like to see 
Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen defend those titles against David Von Erich and Kevin Von Erich because hmm. I think that could be the team that could you know, win those titles and represent yeah. them. Excellent writing, yeah. All right. Fun. Most improved wrestler. Number one is Jim Duggan. Number two is Bruce Reed. Number three is Don Kernodal. Number four is Buzz Sawyer. And number five is King Kong Bundy. John, if you had a ballot, who would you vote for 1982's Most Improved Wrestler? This is a tough one because it seems like a lot like this category, the voting at least, seems more to have to do with the, the push of the wrestler than their actual improvement as a wrestler. With that said, I'd probably go with Bruce Reed. I Bruce Reed, Butch Reed. Um, I, I, I love his 1982. In, in 81, he was sort of booked you know, a little lower, but this was a great year. Like, I don't know, is it Dory or Eddie booking here? I don't even, I'm not sure who's booking Florida or Dusty. I have no idea who's booking Florida this year, but whoever it is, it seems like they definitely have plans for old Bruce Reed here. He wrestles like Flair, they would draw, ask for five more minutes, Flair says, okay, then Reed beats them. But because the pinfall did not happen within the time limit, Reed didn't get the title. Uh, they do the angle where, you know, he, he tears off Flair's suit on tv which flair seems to really like a lot um he works program with flair they do the hour broadways da, 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 da. he's feuding with dory funk all over florida uh he does the body slam challenge with stud i think in 82 years before they do it in the wwf it's like there it seems like they're really trying to make a star out of this kid in 1982 yeah, it does. And um, I don't know if he I, here's the thing. I, I can't. It's hard for me to determine, like, who improved most in the ring. But the one guy I did notice was a lot better in 82 than 81 is a guy we've already talked about. If I had a ballot, I would have gone Buzz Sawyer, number one. He seemed to take leaps and bounds, you know, from his push. I remember when he was in he started off as a babyface. In the mid-Atlantic, he was in Florida a little bit, and then he came back to Florida in 81, and I was, I was very surprised to see that he was now a heel, and now then he brings that to Georgia, and after, you know, he'd already been in Georgia since, I want to say, summer of 81, and I just thought he got a lot better as 1982 went on. There was definitely, and also just a, an incredible physical transformation, too. Like, he starts off... It might still be 81, but he's got like he's wearing the singlet still. Um, he still has some some hair on top. I think there was a was there a hair match against Bruce Reed that he lost? Maybe is that one? At the um, end of 1982, yeah, he lost his hair to Butch Reed. And then you know, but he's that's an incredible physical transformation. Like as the year goes on and on, he starts looking more. And not only does he get better, quote unquote, but he looks crazier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, supposedly all Buzz wanted his entire life was to be a pro wrestler. He dropped out of school. He was a, a, a top flight amateur in Florida, and he dropped out of school to become a pro wrestler because he mm. didn't care about that. And now he's starting to do the things he needs to do to be a main event pro wrestler, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yes, indeed. All right. So who would your your number two most improved be? Uh, number two, I have Duggan. Previous to this year, you know, he was sort of... He was, I think he was in WWF in 81, you know, and he's like one of those guys who, you know, he, he beat Silvano Souza, but he lose to SD Jones. He was at yes. that level. <laughs> so, you know, and then he's in, he's in Georgia also, and he's at a, at a similar level when he's in Georgia. 
But then when he hits Mid-South slash Houston and he's in like the Akbar's bounty hunter thing and then later on the Rat Pack, it's his first real push. And, and when you see him, you're like, how the hell, sorry for my language, how the That's hell me. did nobody push this guy sooner? Because he's awesome. <laughs> he, he looks awesome. Uh, he's, you know, he's got the sunglasses, the bandana and the headband. He just looks and talks like such a badass. I'm like, I don't know how it took people this long to see this in Jim Duggan. I remember him in Georgia and he was kind of doing a caveman gimmick. And I saw a little bit of him in Southwest doing the same thing. And I think when he got to Mid-South, Watts saw something in him. What a surprise, a linebacker from SMU. Um, <laughs> You know, but he saw something in Duggan and he found the right role for him. And to me, when he was in Mid-South right away, I, I didn't see this in the WWF. I didn't see this in Georgia. But when I saw Mid-South, it's like, look, this guy has a future in this business. He looks like a future star. And where did you have Duggan? Duggan and I had it number two as well. Nice. nice, nice and, nice. you know, like I said, it might have been more of a push thing, but. He was certainly in a better world at the end of 1982 than he was at the beginning of it. All right, now Dave talked a little bit about best finishing maneuver at the beginning of the newsletter. He said that some people put like uh, just the superplex or just a drop kick. Like what he really wanted, I guess he didn't make clear enough, is he wanted the wrestler who was doing it. So some yeah. votes apparently got thrown out. But anyway, number one is the super destroyer superplex. Number two. Jimmy Snooker Sloopify Splash. Number three, Tiger Mask Leap Outside the Ring. Number four, Buzz Sawyer's Power Slam. Number five, Tito Santana's Bridging Leg Lock. Honorable mention is Bob Backlund's Chicken Wing that he introduced in 1982. John, what would you say was the best finishing maneuver of 1982? Again, sorry for being biased towards the Northeast again, but the Superfly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've never seen, like you were saying, WWF TV. You, you just weren't number one. You're not used to seeing stuff like Jimmy Snuka. Just you, you don't see a Jimmy Snuka. I'd never seen a Jimmy Snuka, anything like it. And you've never seen a crowd go that crazy for something on WWF TV. That wasn't an angle. And even then you would never, you'd barely, you'd rarely see an angle. You'd go years without seeing an angle on WWF TV. And this was something that would just happen. You know, every time he wrestled, he would, the crowd would go crazy, even though he was, you know, when he was still a heel. It was the whole package with Snuka, but this this flash was a huge, huge part of it. It absolutely was. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in the Boston Garden when he jumped off the cage. This is in 83 onto Magnificent Morocco. And I think mm. he only did that in two cities, uh, Boston and New York. So I'm one of like 35,000 people who got to see that nice. live. But I, I mean, I remember going to spot shows in 83 when Snuka was a baby face, you know, little ice arenas or. Uh, junior high gyms and people would be really disappointed when he didn't do the superfly splash i was disappointed yeah. and you know that's what people if people are coming to see your finishing maneuver then that's best finishing maneuver and now i understand that snooker he just couldn't do that every single night there there is no way his body would hold up so he saved it for the the new york's philadelphia's pittsburgh's yeah, I remember going to like my, my dad would take me to the Westchester County Center in White Plains, New York, and a similar experience in, in 1983 when he started taking me. And Snuka, instead of the splash, he'd do 
you know, like a almost like a Jerry Lawler fist or a headbutt from the second rope as a finisher, or even just a regular old headbutt. Um, and I was like, why didn't he do the splash, Dad? But it was it was a little disappointing. <laughs> no, I, I've been there, like I said, and not just me being disappointed, but like the whole arena would be like, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, he would just like he he did a splash, but he would do it he would do it from the, from the ring. Like he would just like jump up and, and splash yeah. a guy not yeah, from the yeah, top yeah. rope. And everyone's like, what? wait a minute, this sucks. Uh, how about, how about looking at it from this perspective, the finishing maneuver that you personally felt was the, the most impressive looking. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd still probably go with the superfly splash. Okay. And then I also, I love super D superplex. A lot of that too. I, think is because of the it looks really cool in the tbs studios the way the cameras were positioned on the studio floor and him going to you know the the second rope with it it looked you know it looked like he he was coming off a building just because of the way the cameras as opposed to if you see that on wwf tv or even like you know a a garden show where the the hard camera is up higher the cameras being on the floor made that superplex look devastating yeah, and by you see, when I first saw the superplex from Super Destroyer in 1981, I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like like you said, the cameras were positioned correctly, so it looked like he, he was superplexing a guy off a building, and yeah. then you hear that giant crash. Oh yeah, like, so oh well. my god, he just killed this guy. Yeah. But by 1982, Bob Orton Jr. was also using it. Yep. and that took a little bit something off of it for me. I thought Ted DiBiase had a better power slam than Buzz Sawyer, but he didn't use it as a finisher. He used it as a setup for the figure four. So from there, I would go with Buzz Sawyer's power slam. And when I say I think Ted DiBiase's is a little smoother and a little bit better, Buzz was like purely vicious with it. It was like a combination of a power slam, but there was a little bit like the way he torqued it. It almost looked like a belly to belly suplex. Yeah, I remember there's, I think it's, it's I think on the, uh, there's a TV match, Buzz and Paul Orndorff, where Orndorff is like running the ropes and he's going, or no, Buzz is running the ropes and Orndorff jumps to do a leapfrog. And Buzz just stops on a dime and catches him in like a running power slam out of, in the middle of Orndorff's leapfrog. And it's just like the most vicious thing. It's like, oh, it's like, I don't, it, it's, he's so agile, but brutal all at the same time. It's very impressive to watch. I do remember, I remember seeing that spot as it aired, and I've also seen it on tape. It is impressive. Is there a finishing maneuver that you would put in as a write-in? I had a, I had a couple as a, as a write-in, not, not top, but I love Morocco's Asiatic spike. I love the tape thumb. I love it. It's just a, a simple maneuver. Then they really, they really presented it as a, a devastating move. This, my other one is not good. Again, I don't want to be controversial. Not a good move. But this is, you know, my first year of watching wrestling on television. Black Jack Mulligan's claw hold. Only because of the red X. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? What is going on? Why? What is, I can't imagine what was happening. Most likely it was nothing, but the red X, you know, that, that sold it for me. The red X is, is the greatest thing ever because <laughs> what was, what was going on, what was going on, your imagination destroyed what was really, you know, was so much better than what was really going on. 
John, when when I was a kid, I was like ten. Talk about a dumb kid thing to do. The first time I saw the Big Red X, Baron von Raschka was using it in like early 1977. I got up and I tried to look around the Red X. Oh yeah, I totally would have. I'm I, I guarantee I tried to do that too. <laughs> I got guaranteed. lost at the moment. Guaranteed, I went behind the TV with a flashlight trying to <laughs> see Black Jack Mulligan's perm. Oh, that was that was something else. I, I remember being really surprised he turned up uh, as a heel, even though it totally made sense because he'd been a babyface since like late 1978. Yep. All right, most impressive wrestler. I'm trying to figure out exactly what this means. Is yeah, this I, like, I, I struggled with this too. Okay. Is it you know? Is it the? Let's say it was. Be, is it best in ring performer? Or I guess I'll go with that if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I could, judging by the votes, that makes sense, because you have, you know, we could, you want to, we got, you know, you want to go through the, the list here, we've got. Yeah, I, I will, I, uh, number one was Tiger Mask, Sayama, number two was Jimmy Snuka, number three, and there's a big drop-off after this one, number three is Paul Orndorff, number four is Ted DiBiase, number five is a tie between Nick Bockwinkle and Adrian Adonis. John, who would you have put as the most impressive wrestler of 1982? Like, the, I guess the best in-ring performer. Uh, you know, it's probably, I'm not a, a huge 82 Japan aficionado, but Tiger Mask was the guy. Tiger Mask in 82. Huge, huge deal. And his, his hugely in, influential. Yeah, and there's other categories that he ranks high on that I don't necessarily agree with his placement there. But I think he fits well here. Like impressive is a good, you know, I don't see him as, uh, you know, a hero or necessarily yeah. the best scientific wrestler, but impressive. I'll, I can I, I can I don't want to say see to that vote to him. But yes, he is an Im- impressive. And I see him, you know, he's more impressive to me than Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll go, I, I will go with Tiger Mask here. All right. I personally would have gone with a write-in candidate, someone who didn't Ooh. get it on here. Where's Ric Flair? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's more impressive than Ric Flair in 1982, <laughs> but if yeah. you're going by work, he gets my number one, and I mean, I want to say it's not even close, but he was amazing in 1982. He was. You, you could say impressive. <laughs> he wanted to go now. I want to say this tiger mask was incredibly impressive to the point where when I started getting videotapes in 1987, so five years later, I was blown away by what this guy was doing in the ring. And the stuff he did in WWF was legendary, but his, it it doesn't hold up to his Japan stuff. Holy crap. Some of those matches he had with dynamite kid and black tiger. I mean, those were amazing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I didn't see Tiger Mask until probably around the same time on a, on a weird compilation tape I sent away for from the back of Wrestling Eye magazine or something. <laughs> and it was, and again, like, you know, four or five years later, you know, and you still hasn't, we still hadn't caught up. No, I, I agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about their number two, Jimmy Snuka. I think Jimmy had a lot of people fooled. <laughs> He, if we're going by in-ring work rate, I, to me, he wouldn't be in my top 20, 25. I'm not knocking Jimmy. He had that one big move, but at the end of the day, it was that one big move 
and you know the rest of it definitely not worth the number two spot in my opinion no i agree Uh, he had the splash he had the the double leapfrog karate chop he had that move yeah and there's you know there's a few a few times in his career really that you know and like the cage match with backland like if we talk about that later where he is sort of forced to work a more methodical style and he seems to be okay at it, but you don't really, you don't see that much of that throughout the year just on TV. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, but let, yeah, I, at the end of the day, I just thought he was, he was way too high. Who would you have as your number two? Number two, I'd probably have DiBiase. DiBiase was great in 1982. I, you know, just from everything we talked about as far as like, it really, he really is the the whole package like he can do he he can be i mean it's 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 it sounds very cliche to say you know he can, he can be your sympathetic baby face and he could be this evil 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 heel but what's more impressive and what you don't see a lot is a guy whose work can keep up with the the, the heel or baby face personality and adjust adjust appropriately which you don't see a lot and that's very impressive yeah, DBS would probably be my number four or number five, which is which is not a knock, believe me, if you're top five. My number two is another no wait a minute. You know what? I'm gonna go with this guy, number two. Adrian Adonis is my number two. I saw he had a great match in, in Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund, a great match in Landover against Madison Square Garden. These have been out there for close to forty years. But what you don't see, because they didn't record the shows, he had an two excellent matches against Bob Backlund in Boston. Mm. He got an excellent match out of Pedro Morales in Boston. Oh, wow. But wait, he got an excellent match against the 1982 version of Andre the Giant in Boston. Wow. It was like Andre was just standing there and Adrian was pinballing around doing the crazy bumps. It was a, it was such a, an unbelievable performance on his part. And sadly, it was the last Boston Garden match of this run. But if you can get a really good match out of Andre the Giant, you have impressed me. Yeah, and it's it's I get I get weird looks all the time from people when they ask, oh, if you have any any video of any territory uh, that doesn't exist, what would you choose? And I I always mention like the early, the late seventies, early eighties Boston Garden cards. I would love to see so many. And just 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 from hearing you talk about them, like you always mention a, a Backland uh, Orton match that you saw. That was fantastic. That's going to make Orton my number three, by the way. Oh, OK. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I, I mean, I might as well talk about it now. I mean, Backland and Orton had a match in Boston so good that the crowd gave the match a standing ovation afterwards. So wow. color me impressed. And, and Orton was so good anyway. I'm going to go him number three. Who's your number three, John? My number three was Orndorff. Orndorff uh, was great. Orndorff was great. I love him. I there's there's a lot of feuds, and as much as I love '82 Georgia, there's a lot of feuds that I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I could see more of Orndorff with this guy. You know, there's a lot a lot of the time we don't see uh, those matches, those Omni matches. We just have a little clip here and there, so we just have the TV. You know, so I'd love to see more Orndorff versus a mass superstar. I'd love more Orndorff and Buzz Sawyer. I would love to see more of them, actually. And maybe that's why I just I want to see more of it. And that's that's probably one of the reasons why he's on my most impressive list. All right. Now we're going to go to the most washed up wrestler. 
Number one was superstar Billy Graham. Number two, and I want to talk about this, Gene Kaniski. Number three, Pedro Morales. Number four, Dominic DiNucci, in the same category as Gene Kaniski. Number five was Ray Stevens. Honorable mention, Angelo Poffos, Dan Stasiak, Jay Strongbow, and Dick the Bruiser. John, what do you think about superstar Billy Graham as the most washed-up wrestler of 1982? Oh, man, this category makes me sad, calling these guys washed up. Um, <laughs> different times for the Wrestling Observer, different times. The superstar Billy Graham, I, ha- I have to agree. I have to agree. Keep in mind, like, in 1982, I had never seen superstar Billy Graham on TV before this. I'd seen photos of him in the older magazine. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with, like, the former WWF champions and the, the whole title history. So in my head, I'm still thinking he looks like 1977 superstar. Then I remember seeing a photo of new superstar Billy Graham, like Kung Fu expert in one of the magazines before he came back. And I I remember thinking that this was either a a misprint, like someone laid out the article with the wrong photos or something, or that the promoters were trying to like pull a fast one, like just throw this other guy out there. We'll call him superstar Billy Graham and no one would know. And then when she did see him on TV, he just looked, he looked bad and not just deflated from going off whatever he was on, he looked, he looked like unhealthy, almost unhealthy, bad. And there's yeah. some inter- interviews from this era that you, when you would watch him, you're like, wow, I can't, I can't believe they let him go on the air like this. He's so messed up. And it's not like, not like a Don Morocco promo where you could tell he's, he's on something, but I hate to say that Don Morocco doing it adds to his promos, but when Superstar Billy Graham, it just looks sad. And then when you see him in the ring, it just gets worse. I mean, he was never Superstar Graham was never Jack Briscoe. But the 70s superstar could make this work. You know, he'd take the big, the big bumps and he'd do this thing and it worked. But he's just, he's slowed down a lot and he's so clunky. And he tries to rip apart like the Backlund's belt on TV and he can't even rip the belt apart, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was nine years old in 1982. So Kung Fu and Karate and Ninja stuff seems super cool to me. But like, so for me, not to be into this Kung Fu gimmick as a nine year old says a lot. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm going to be honest. In 1982, I did not look at superstar Billy Graham and say, wow, this guy's washed up. I just didn't. I, I thought he was different than huh. he was in the 70s. Uh, now I, I look at him and say, yeah, this guy's completely washed up. But I did not feel that way at the time. Now let's move on to this Gene Kaniski thing. Where are we watching Gene Kaniski and saying, oh, my God, he's washed up? Like, I think the, the size of the stage has to matter here. I am guessing Gene Kaniski was wrestling strictly in British Columbia, or maybe he made an appearance in Portland or something, but so what? And it's the same thing with Dominic Tanucci. He left the WWF in early 1982, and then he was wrestling for uh, that Kowalski-Bruno promotion. I mean, oh, who's, yeah. who's seeing him and saying, wow, he's washed up? It's like, you know, he's wrestling in the minor leagues. Uh, same thing with Angelo Poffo and Dick the Bruiser. John, who would you, so your number one would be superstar Billy Graham. My number one is Chief J. Strongbow. Mm. He, he was in a big promotion, WWF. He was fat, but he was losing his hair. It was, yeah. you know, he was a shell of the 1970s Chief J. Strongbow. He had to wear a singlet in the ring to try to hide his body. And I just thought, you know, like I said, for a guy, who had such a, a big stage? I thought he looked terrible, and I thought yeah. I thought at the at the time too. Not just a big stage, but he was like going to be a tag team champion. Yeah, you know, you know a top a top one of the top belts in the territory, and it, 
you know, and what what makes it, you know, even even more upsetting is, you know, you lose your hair, you lose your hair, whatever. But a lot of it was him letting himself go. Yeah. Clearly, like not just not caring about how he looked. Yeah, I had, had Strongbow, I think, at number three for me. But yeah, I, I had the same feeling on Kaniski and Danucci. Like, I, I was like, well, I, I had to look up to see where, like, I thought Danucci was, was gone. Like, I didn't even know. I thought he was at his wrestling school, but, yeah. I was looking forward to this show, and it is not a disappointment. We will have part two of our discussion of the 1982 Observer Yearbook Review for you guys next week. I hope you've enjoyed the first part. Thank you for listening. I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work he does for Stick to Wrestling. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.